Great to see you. Uh, welcome to Christchurch. If we haven't met before, my name's Paul. I'm part of the pastoral team here. We're working through this series on the idea of worship, what worship is about, uh, and the general kind of structure that we're looking at it under the heading of is there's a verse in the New Testament which reflects uh, really the kind of storyline of the Old Testament, the summary of the Old Testament, uh, where Jesus confirms that we are to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, with all of our soul, with all of our mind, and with all of our strength. And so looking at that kind of way, that holistic way in which we are to love God, we ask ourselves, how therefore do we worship? We worship every day or we don't worship every day. We worship every day when we are constantly reminded the things that we do are ever before God. That's a massive idea, isn't it? The idea that our lives are constantly before God And therefore, in everything that we do, there is the opportunity to worship in the most mundane of things, in the ordinary aspects of life, we can worship God. John Piper puts it like this, there is the opportunity to worship God when we drink a glass of orange juice. (laughs) And you kind of think, what? How do you do that? There are many things that we can think of as we drink a glass of orange juice. I am right at this moment being granted the opportunity to be refreshed. I am thankful that God has not created some sort of world where everything is a single flavor, but there is a a kind of dynamism in our palate. Uh, And that's how we are created, to enjoy this world. and, And so it can go on and on. But we also worship specifically when we gather together, when we meet in this way. And so we're trying to think, what are the issues that we need to grab a hold of uh, as we think about our worship as we gather together? We're on week two of looking at the idea of the soul, that uh, in this sense, it's the idea of that uh, emotional sense of us, who I am as an emotional being. My heart is all about who I am as the things that I determine to do. My soul is the idea of who I am in terms of my emotional engagement. It has been quite a week, hasn't it? Uh, How often are we saying this in the past 12 months? It has been quite a week uh, with the elections. (laughs) You know, it is only in the UK that the Prime Minister could stand up on a stage with the candidate, Lord Buckethead, stood next to her. Did you see Lord Buckethead? Uh, With the great big kind of Darth Vader lookalike, apart from the bucket on his head. What was his manifesto? What did he promise? He promised to reintroduce CFAX. And he also promised to make Birmingham a star base. That is what we need, isn't it? I thought it was really quite amusing. And it, I guess in, he also gathered 249 votes. Wow. Um, <laughs> there's a few bucket heads down in Birmingham, therefore. But isn't it interesting? There is that kind of emotion. There is the kind of expression. But the, as the counting was going on, You saw the different expressions of emotion, the sheer elation, the joy, the excitement, and the tears 
and the sadness and the heartbreak. And in that sense, that emotional engagement, which is our unguarded expression of how we truly feel, is placed in certain things. And there is therefore, of course, the danger that we might place place our emotional experience in something which is ultimately going to let us down. I think that's very often why we are emotionally hard, particularly as we get older, because we tend to feel that the expectations that we had in our kind of joyful youth have been gradually more and more shattered. We have become more and more cynical, and so we reach that point where we won't give ourselves emotionally to anything for fear of being hurt for fear of being crushed. I get that. It's real. When we worship God, therefore, are we in danger of the same? Are we scared that our emotion, our our unguarded emotional expressions might also be crushed? There's Leeds Triathlon going on today. And the, uh, one of the commentators made a really interesting comment. He said, you can see the emotion in the athletes. You can see how much it means to them. I thought, wow, that captures something, doesn't it? That really captures something. We can see how much something means to somebody by the way in which we emotionally engage in it. And therefore, in in a gathering like this, I am so thankful that God, as we will see as we unfold this idea, He looks down at not the individuals, you and me as individuals. He looks down and He sees us. He sees His church across the UK. He sees His people across the world and the breadth of our engagement in worship is joyful to God, even though perhaps our individual tendencies are maybe suppressed, are maybe cold, are maybe challenged. And so we come to this, this, we're looking at this chapter, uh, 2 Samuel chapter 6, we're looking at this for the two weeks that we're looking at the idea of soul. And so we're going to come back to it, but we'll, we'll just remind ourselves of the big story. David uh, has uh, found, after the, the Ark of the Covenant, this historical emblem of God's presence, has been uh, in uh, Obed-Edom. Uh, for No, has it? Got this right. 2 Samuel chapter 6. The presence of God, that kind of, this emblem of God's presence with His people has previously been held captive by the Philistines, the enemies of God's people, and it has been uh, taken back, not by force, but because the Philistines wanted to get rid of it. Uh, they went to Bala, that's the first place where it was, it was in Bala, apologies for that, uh, and they go to bring it back. As they are bringing it back, 
David's raised this great army to bring it back safely to Jerusalem. They load it onto a cart. They start moving away. It almost falls off the cart. There's somebody at the front, somebody at the back. It almost falls off the cart. Uzziah reaches out to grab it. He pushes it back on the cart. Is my imagination of the, the narrative, the way it's described. And as he touches it, God's anger bursts out and he drops down dead. David is terrified. He says, if this is the nature of God, this holiness, this purity, how can I possibly allow this to be close to me in Jerusalem because I'm unclean? And so he keeps it there for, he leaves it at another private home in Obed-Edom. And so what he then sees over three months is that God brings remarkable blessing on that home. He goes back and he brings it back to Jerusalem, carrying it, uh, and then as he arrives at Jerusalem, he emotionally engages in the presence of God with his people in a priestly capacity, as we saw last week, as he dances in front of the ark. His wife, Michael, looks at him in absolute horror. What are you doing? Why are you doing this? She's embarrassed, she's ashamed, and he says... I will be even more humbled as I will worship God. Now, now the key to that is, and we need to grab a hold of this, and this is just a kind of passing comment. We'll come back to ideas uh, as we travel through, but we, we need to come to the understanding that David is effectively saying, Michael, you need to understand I am not dancing in front of the people. I am not dancing in front of the slave girls that he accused me of dancing in front of. My focus is not on them, it's on God. That's where my emotion is directed. And that's what we need to think about. And so I want to think about, firstly, and we said we'd go into it in a little bit more detail this week, I want to think about what is this thing, the ark? Why is it significant? To understand that, we go back to Exodus, uh, and we understand how God uh, has formed um, a picture, a moving physical picture, three-dimensional picture of His presence with His people. God's people have come out of Egypt. They've been remarkably redeemed from Egypt. He gives them the law. He says, you are no longer a family under the, the kind of heritage of Abraham. You are now my people. You are a nation. You are a kingdom, in a sense. Well, you are a nation that is traveling to establish yourself as a kingdom. And therefore, you live under my rule. You live under my care. You live under my blessing. And therefore, this is how you are to live. You are not to live like this so that I will save you. You are lit to live like this because I've saved you. Do you see the difference? That is written through the Bible throughout. How often do we say the Christian faith is all about a set of rules? It's not. It's about faith in Jesus. And as a result of that faith in Jesus, we then want to live in a different way, because we are now part of the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
Exactly the same idea with God's people at the beginning. And therefore, he says, this is how you are to describe it. You are to build a wooden box, and then you are to cover it in gold. Various things go into that box, but at least one of the things that goes into that box are the stone tablets with the law written onto them. Then you are to make rings, and they're to be fitted to the side of the box, and you're put to put poles through those rings, and you are to carry the ark in that way. Because this, it, this picture of my holiness is beyond your ability to come into contact with. You see the significance now of Uzziah reaching out and touching it, treating it not with the, the sense of the glory of God. Build this box. And then we read in uh, Exodus 25 and verse 15, it says this, the poles are to remain in the rings of this ark. They are not to be removed. You see pictures, don't you, of those seats, sedan chairs with, with uh, some of them have removable rings, uh, removable poles. These are removable poles, but you're not to remove them because you are always to carry it in this way. Then put in the, the ark the tablets of the covenant law. That's, I'll rephrase that to help us understand. Then to put into the ark the tablets of the promise and agreement that I make with you. Make an atonement cover of pure gold. And that's to go on the top of this box. It forms the lid. And that's going to be two and a half cubits long and two and a half cubits wide. Do you remember cubits in school? Did you, or was it only kind of people over about 45 who did cubits, cubits that long, two and a half of those, unless you're kind of uh, amorphically disfigured like me with an incredibly long forearm, maybe that slightly shorter than two and a half of those. And then make two cherubs out of hammered gold at the ends of the cover. So here's a box, there's the lid, and then there are two angelic hammered gold cherubim over the top. What, what is all of that about? Well, we understand uh, a little bit more when we understand later in the chapter it says this. Then above the cover, between the two, two cherubim that are over the Ark of the Covenant, I will meet with you and give you all the commands for the Israelites. So let's do it step by step. The first is the nature of God is written into the Ark. Golden box looks amazing. Contained within it is the beauty of the law. The law is a beautiful thing. You can't keep it, but it's a good thing. And then above it is a statement of the holiness and glory of God. These cherubim, this kind of picture of the holiness of God in heaven, and then there is this place in between that sits between the holiness of God and the law of God where God says, I'll meet with you. And so the first thing that we say, see is the nature of God, which, which David dances in front of, is an incredibly overwhelming, 
powerful, glorious, incredible statement. What is God like? He is astoundingly glorious and holy, and He is also absolutely just in the law contained within. That is an amazing picture, isn't it? That's why the law is so important. Not because it's a magic box of tricks where if you lift the lid up, there's an enormous flash and everybody melts around it. You can see how many people have watched the film by how many understand that. This idea that see kind of this magic powerful box, it is not about that. It is all about the glory of God. It's about this statement, the glory of God with his people. It's about the nature of God. What kind of God do we need? <laughs> not my, not, we might want all sorts of other gods. We might want God to be like all sorts of other things, but we actually need a God who is astoundingly glorious and incredibly just. It's what we need. So the ark shouldn't be shoved onto a cart and loaded up to be trundled up to Jerusalem. Do you see the way David brings it back the second time round? They carry the ark. After six steps, they make a sacrifice as if to say, this is a, this is a holy journey. These are all kind of statements of action, which is saying this God is incredibly glorious is incredibly beautiful, is incredibly just. So the way the ark is transported the second time is very different. But the other thing that we see is we see a promise. There's a promise in verse 22 of Exodus. There, above the cover, above the law, between the two cherubim, I want you to imagine a flat plate above the cover. The cherubim's wings are kind of arching over and touching each other. And there is this space in between. And God says, I will meet you there. Isn't that incredible? What's God saying? I'll kind of appear in some kind of spooky cloud? Or is he saying something profoundly deeper than that. I will meet you above the law because I know you'll never keep the law. You'll never be able to keep the law. I'll meet you above the law. I'll meet you in that space between my glorious holiness and a place that you can never be. Why is that? It is a place of mercy. You can't do it but that's where I'll meet you. Isn't that amazing? God is saying in this physical representation, here's the law, you'll never keep it. I'm gloriously holy, and therefore everything about it should say, you can never come close. And then he says, but I'll meet you there. That's where I'll meet you, at the mercy seat as it becomes known, at that place of mercy, because what you need is not all the boxes ticked so that the law is kept. Because you'll never do it. You need mercy. And I will meet you there. I love that. 
God is saying, I will, I, will, I will meet you in mercy. That's an amazing thought. It's no wonder, therefore, that David just dances. His heart is just overflowing with joy because he understands this is this representation of God's, pe- God's presence coming together with God's people, and I know it speaks about mercy. And therefore, my heart is just overflowing with mercy and joy and thankfulness and, and worship and praise because the nature of God is not skewed by my presence, by unwor- my unworthy presence, but it is met in His mercy. No wonder David dances. Here's the question. And it is, this is the question for us today. Is it possible, therefore, for us to emotionally engage in that same joy? Is it possible? We could say, because we all know the film, the ark is lost. We ain't got the ark. We also pretty much know, not in detail, but we know every museum in the whole of the world doesn't contain the Ark of the Covenant. We know that because if one museum contained it, everybody would know about it. The Ark is lost. So here's the key. Is it therefore, is it in worship, is it impossible therefore for us to meet with God as He promises to meet with us? Is it shattered and gone? No. No. That is the beauty of the idea of the ark. Because you see, God God has treated His people, let me put it like this, He's treated His people as infants in nursery. He's loved them that much. I am way beyond your understanding. For you to understand me, we can't start with calculus. We need to start by adding up apples and oranges. And therefore, I'll, I'll portray it with boxes of gold and stone tablets with law and cherubim hammered gold which show my holiness and tents where you can't come in, and clouds, because that is kindergarten knowledge of God. But I'm taking you on a journey so that it doesn't stay there, because I'm going to reveal to you not what I am like by describing myself, I am going to reveal to you what I am like by my presence. Listen to what it says. In Hebrews. This is where we understand that the lost ark is not a crisis. Hebrews chapter 8 and verse 3. Every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices, and so it was necessary for this one also to have something to offer. If he were on this, talking about Jesus, if he were on earth, he would not be a priest, for there are already priests who offer the gifts prescribed by the law. 
they serve at a sanctuary that is a copy and shadow of what is in heaven. That's really complicated, isn't it? But it's basically saying, while you were understanding what I'm like, you needed a priest on earth to describe what it was like to come into the presence of God. But now, you've got a priest in heaven, Jesus. He's the priest. They serve at a sanctuary which is a copy and shadow of what is in heaven. This is why Moses was warned when he was about to build the tabernacle, see that you make everything according to the pattern shown you on the mountain. In other words, if you're going to do it, you've got to do it absolutely right. But, in fact, the ministry Jesus has received is as superior to theirs as the covenant of which he is mediator is superior to the old one since the new covenant is established on better promises. Have you got all that? (laughs) Wow! (laughs) Let's just take a few steps. Here's the ark. A golden box speaks of the law, speaks of the mercy, speaks of the glory, speaks of the promise that God says, I'll meet with you. And that is a covenant that God makes. That's why it's the Ark of the Covenant. It's this representation. God's made a promise and He's going to keep it. He's made the promise, I will meet you in mercy. And then Jesus comes along and He makes a new promise. Not that the old promise was not good, But when a better promise comes along, the old one becomes obsolete. That's the idea for all that Nokia uh, introducing the 3310. How many of us are really desperate to go back to those old phones which are not smartphones? They've become obsolete because there is something just so much better. We carry around ten times the computing power necessary to put somebody into space in 1969 in our pockets. might be a hundred times, actually. I might not have the right number of zeros. Whatever. The old is obsolete because it's not as good as the new. And so the promise of God, as good as it was, becomes better in Jesus. Why? What was key to that promise? The key to that promise was this. The law is important. You can't keep it. I'm holy and glorious, and that doesn't change, but I will meet you in mercy. That's the key. And Jesus comes along, and the new ark looks like this. Savior nailed to the cross. Nailed to a cross. Becomes the new ark. Why? Because that says, my law matters. I'm a righteous, just God. Nothing's changed. That was back there. The law, the tablets of the law were in the box because they mattered. Jesus is on a cross because the law of God matters. And you and me can never keep it. But what else happened in that? amazing picture, that amazing box, 
God says, I'm glorious, but I'll meet you. I'll meet you. And that's what the cross says as well. Because Jesus didn't get nailed to a cross in heaven. He got nailed to a cross on earth. He met with us. He's, he displayed that the law mattered, but then He gloriously, incredibly, majestically rose again. Do you see how the whole of the Bible just fits together? That bit over there about an ark, about an ark and a golden box and somebody dying because they touched it, I happen to believe that I'll, I'll see Uzziah in heaven. That's a separate issue. I think I'll see him in heaven. He did something terrible. But the cross, I believe, will save him. It's a picture of how astoundingly righteous and glorious God is. And then the cross comes in and says... Nothing has changed, but I will meet with you. I think that that idea is incredible in Hebrews, but Jesus says it so clearly in Matthew. This is my blood of the covenant. This is my blood of the covenant. Here's the agreement I'll make with you. Here's the promise I'll keep. How important is God's promises? Your promises and my promises, as much as we desire to keep them, we will fail. But God's promises are absolutely certain. If they weren't, He wouldn't be God. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. You know, David dances. David's emotions are flooding out of him because he gets to the point of realizing what God is doing in his presence through the ark. He sees this is about God being merciful. Even though we are unjust, even though we do stupid things, like touch the ark and load it onto a cart, and not treat God's glory with the kind of majesty that it deserves, and yet He still blesses us. And therefore, let me just erupt with joy. Let my emotions pour out of me. When we come to worship, when we gather and we worship the living God, do we go through the motions? Or are we so moved in our hearts that there are times when we feel as though the tears are about to trickle down our cheeks? Or when we can't keep a smile off our face? Because, because it matters. 
because it means something. It counts. It's real. There's two ways to respond to it. Michael shows one. We, we get the idea that she hates the idea that David is dancing in front of the ark. And he's the king, and I'm, I'm kind of want to be attached to somebody who looks high and mighty. But really, what, she, what is she really, really rejecting? She is really rejecting the mercy of God. That's what's really at stake. She's kind of saying, the mercy of God doesn't matter as much as my dignity. And David says, the mercy of God means way more than my dignity. And Christian worship will always look like that. The worship of somebody nailed to a cross will always look ridiculous, stupid, pathetic. And it is if it is not true. It is if it is not true. To worship somebody who was nailed to a cross is ridiculous if the whole of the story of the message of the Bible is not true. And it has always been like that. First, second century. There's some Roman graffiti which has been uncovered, scratched into plaster. Wikipedia it, you'll see the pictures. It's of a scratched cross and, and a person nailed to a cross but the head has been replaced with a donkey head. And it says underneath it something along the lines of this. Alexa, Man Alexa Menos worships his God. Alexa Menos Whoever he was, was a Christian, obviously. And in the eyes of people around him, he worshipped a donkey nailed to a cross. You know, we can get bent out of shape about the kind of, uh, the shocking humor of the world towards Jesus. Nothing has changed. It, there is nothing new under the sun. It still looks stupid. It still looks like we are worshipping a person with a donkey head on unless that person truly is the Son of the living God present with us, showing that the law matters, showing that mercy will be shown, and we can come and say, I am overjoyed because that matters to me. And so we each here this evening, we respond in different ways to the idea of being present, figuratively speaking, dancing before the ark. We might in our hearts be dancing, or we might also be like Michael saying, this is pathetic, this is ridiculous. We might perceive it as though we are wasting our time. What we can't get away from is the ongoing storyline of the Bible which compels us 
to understand that the message of God is consistently playing out. I am a just God, I am a holy God, but I am a merciful God. 